What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Happy Monday. I can't believe this week is the start of March. Like, what is happening? How? (laughs) Um, It is insane. You're going to have like a whole ass baby in like, what, three months? Four months? Four months. That's insane. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So happy start of March if you're listening to this, I guess, a couple days later, even before when this comes out. Happy start of March. First of all, I want to give major props to Andrea for covering the Golden State Killer case the last (laughs) three episodes. She did an amazing job. If you guys haven't listened, you need to go listen to those um, because it is a crazy story, of course. But Andrea covered it in a lot of depth, depth and it's super interesting. So highly recommend you go listen to those. Thanks. Today's episode is not necessarily going to be lighter, but it's another one that was solved many many years after it happened okay so we'll just dive right in let's do it on the evening of february 3rd 1972 virginia durham made a call from her home in boone north carolina oh her son-in-law troy hall picked up the phone but he could barely hear virginia when she said help oh no 20 minutes later troy hall was calling the sheriff's department to report a triple homicide at the durham home oh my gosh This is a story of the Durham family murders and how it went unsolved for 50 years. Holy shit. 50 Mm -hmm. years. That just, that's not right. No. And the way that it got solved, it's not through DNA that it got solved. Wow. Okay. So the Durham family moved to Boone in 1971, and they lived in a home on Clyde Townsend Road, which was a steep, dead-end street, so their house was like at the top of a hill. And living in the house was 44-year-old Virginia, her husband, 51-year-old Bryce, and their 18-year-old son, Bobby Joe. Virginia and Bryce's daughter, 19-year-old Jenny Sue, lived about four miles away with her husband, Troy Hall. So the Durham family had moved to Boone because Bryce got an opportunity to open or own a Buick dealership in town. And so this was a dream come true to have his own dealership. So they moved there. He opened it up. And Virginia also worked at the dealership keeping the books. Okay. I like Boone. Boone's in a really cool area. Yeah, I've heard that. It's really nice. It sounds very pretty. Especially if you're into like snowboarding or skiing Mm -hmm. and stuff like that because they have that all that stuff now so fun so um bryce and virginia worked at the dealership bobby joe was in his first year of school at appalachian appalachian is that how you say it it depends on where you're from it's either appalachian or appalachian so all right eh. appalachian or appalachian (laughs) state university and Ginny and troy were also students at asu but since they were married they lived separately from the family okay and the Durham family was known in town to be hardworking, but they were also known to kind of keep to themselves for the most part. They weren't super, like, you know, involved in a ton of stuff, but okay. they were very friendly and people liked them. Okay. 
So you've probably heard about microdosing. If not, just know that all sorts of people are microdosing daily to feel healthier and perform better. Our show today is sponsored by Microdose Gummies. Microdose Gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. I love Microdose Gummies. Not only do they help me decompress from a hard day, they also help me fall asleep on time and wake up feeling rested. By the time my head hits the pillow, I just feel chill and relaxed without all the mental distractions. If you know, you know. (laughs) (laughs) These gummies have been a game changer for me. And they're also delicious. The watermelon and cotton candy flavors are my absolute fave. Yum. (laughs) (laughs) Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use code INHUMAN to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description. But again, that's microdose.com, code INHUMAN. February 3rd, 1972 was a very snowy, stormy day in Boone. So there were four inches of snow on the ground by nightfall, and there were wind gusts that were up to 40 miles an hour. So it was a pretty stormy day. Bryce had a rotary meeting that afternoon in neighboring town Blowing Rock. And so he was there and then returned to the dealership around 8.30 p.m., where he picked up Virginia, who had been working late. And then Bobby was also at the dealership because his parents had told him to meet them there so they could all drive back home together because of the weather. Okay. At around 9 p.m., neighbors reported seeing Bryce driving up the short, steep road to his home. An hour and a half later, at around 10.30, Ginny and Troy were at their home listening to music when they received a phone call. So Troy picked up the phone and he could barely make out the voice on the other line. But he could tell that it was his mother-in-law, Virginia. So she told him that some men had Bobby and Bryce. That's basically all she said. And she said, help. But then the line went dead. Okay. And then when he tried to call back, he got a busy signal. Mm. So at first, he actually thought this was a prank call because of the way that he could like barely hear her. He thought somebody was just like trying to play a joke. He wasn't even 100% sure it was her at first. That's so scary. Yeah, but he told Jenny about it and they became worried. So they decided we're going to go check on them. Now, because of the cold temperatures, their car wouldn't start. So their neighbor, Cecil Small, who was actually a private investigator, um, he agreed to drive them over. So they got to the bottom of the hill the home was on, but because of the weather and the snow and the ice, the car that Cecil was driving wouldn't be safe to go up that hill. So they parked it at the bottom, and then Troy and Cecil walked up to the house while Ginny stayed in the car. When Troy and Cecil went into the house, they found a very disheveled scene. So according to the Charlotte Observer, quote, the house had been ransacked. The telephone cord was ripped from the wall. So that explains why he got a busy signal when he tried to call back and why the, the line suddenly went dead. Because whoever did this likely saw that Virginia was on the phone and then like pulled out the phone line. Oh, wow. Blood spattered the den wall. The television was on, but, it so- but its sound was muffled by the steady swoosh of running water. Oh. So Cecil and Troy followed the sound of water 
to a bathroom and that's where they found three bodies in an overflowing bathtub. They were all in the bathtub? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. And so the swishing sound was the water running over the edge of the bathtub. Oh, my God. So these were the bodies of Virginia, Bryce, and Bobby. That is so sad. So after finding this scene, Troy and Cecil went over to a neighbor's apartment to call the sheriff. Because, again, this is the 1970s, no cell phones right. and no 911. So they called the sheriff's office at 10.50 p.m. And officers arrived pretty quickly, especially considering the snowy conditions. And when they did, they were shocked at the massacre that had taken place. I bet. Now, despite the house looking ransacked, it didn't appear that much was taken. There was even a money bag that had hundreds of dollars stuffed into it that was like pretty out in the open. I don't think it was like the most obvious thing, but Mm -hmm. it it was visible and it remained untouched. Curious. So maybe they were just trying to make it look like a robbery. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah. Golden State Killer vibes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly what investigators thought. Yeah. All three victims had rope burns on their neck, but Virginia was the only one who died by strangulation. Bryce and Bobby died by drowning. What? Okay, so that's making me think there's more than one mm-hmm. perpetrator. Okay. Especially because Bryce and Bobby are like... Grown-ass Bobby men. was known to be very athletic, very like yeah. strong, and not only to die by drowning, but two of them, like you'd think one would yeah. be fighting back when the other one... Like drowning right. takes two hands, prob- like oh, maybe yeah. one... But if you're trying to drown somebody as strong, yeah, yeah. a grown man, like you're definitely going to need two hands, which means somebody's going to have to be taking care of the other people involved. And the fact that um, she was strangled, that's a very personal Mm -hmm. murder. So that makes me wonder if it was if she was the the target the target. Well, and they did all have rope burns on their necks, so oh, okay. it's believed, I think, that Bryce and Bobby were, like, they attempted to strangle them, oh, okay. but then maybe they didn't, it didn't work, they were fighting back too much, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, witnesses reported seeing a green and white SUV leaving the Durham's home around 10.30 p.m. So, this was not long before Virginia, or not long after Virginia made the phone call. And it was determined that this car was actually one that Bryce had borrowed from the dealership that night to get home because of the weather. Oh. So he had driven this car home. So it was technically like his car. It wasn't his, but it was the car he was driving. Right. And so it seemed like the killers took this car as a getaway car. Yeah. So later that night, Highway Patrol actually found that car on the side of the road a few miles away. So the car was still running, had its lights on, its windshield wipers going, and the doors were closed, but there was no one inside the car. Okay. Interestingly, there was a bag of silverware from the Durham home found inside the car, like probably what the killers thought were like was like nice silverware. Yeah. But again, there were bank deposits and other valuables that had been left in the home. So That's weird. It doesn't seem like this was a robbery. Yeah. 
So investigators figured out that this was the car that Bryce had borrowed from the dealership to get home that night, and then the killer stole it and used it as a getaway car, but at some point they abandoned it, and there was no one in sight and no other evidence in the car that could point them to who these people were. Now, a few weeks after the murders, there were actually four men that were arrested, and I could not for the life of me find who these four men were because they were eventually released because of lack of evidence. Yeah, they probably just don't have the records yeah. to show that now. So that's exactly. interesting, though. You would think there would be, like, some kind of... Something. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if it's, like, because they were released and not believed to be and it the was killers. So Maybe long they just ago. didn't... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they were released, but that didn't stop investigators. Investigators interviewed more than 200 people. And this included Troy Hall, Jenny's husband... Because some investigators believed that he may have been involved. Yeah, it crossed my mind, too. Yeah. So Wade Carroll, a Watauga County sheriff, who was actually one of the first officers on the scene that night, was the main believer that Troy may have been involved. And he actually believed that the phone call never happened. Oh. So he believed that Troy was making it up to try to, like, show that I don't know, that's how he discovered them. Yeah. But other investigators, including North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation agent Charlie Whitman, do not believe that or do believe that the call was made. Okay. So Whitman is one of the officers or agents who worked on the case from the very beginning and for years and years. And he said that both Troy and Ginny cooperated from the start And that Ginny corroborated exactly what Troy described happening with the phone call. Okay. And at one point, Ginny was even put under hypnosis to see if she could remember anything else. And during that hypnosis session, she referenced the phone call. Okay. So they were like, this phone call definitely happened. You know, he still could be involved, I guess. But this phone call definitely happened. And the suspicion surrounding Troy faded away over the years. And he wasn't considered a suspect. That's good because, like, that's her family, so I can't exactly. really see her lying for him, mm-hmm. you know, so that's good that he was ruled out. Now, unfortunately, the case went cold pretty quickly. In 1974, there was a newly elected attorney general in North Carolina named Rufus Edmiston. So he, when he became elected AG, he made the unsolved Durham murder a priority for the State Bureau of Investigation or the SBI. So Edmiston was actually originally from Boone, and he was working in Washington um, when he first heard about the case, and he started following it closely. And he actually later became famous for his involvement in the Watergate hearings. And so that kind of got his name out there and helped him eventually become elected AG of North Carolina. Okay. So when he was elected, he activated a murder squad to look into the Durham murders, Because, of course, they were still working on this, but at this point it was a cold case, so there wasn't as much attention on it anymore. So he kind of put a renewed focus on it, and throughout his 10 years of being attorney general, he would assign several agents to the case to try to get fresh perspectives, fresh eyes on it, to try to see if they could find something new. He also spent many personal hours working on the case. He even traveled to visit Ginny in her new home in Washington at some point. And he speculated that the triple homicide was a professional hit. 
So like many investigators, he does not believe that robbery was the motive. Yeah. And not only from the fact that nothing was really taken, but it was such a snowy night and the Durhams lived on such a steep hill that if someone wanted to rob a house that night, it wouldn't have been theirs. It just wouldn't make sense. And then Edmiston also believes that more than one person was involved, like we were talking about. One person would not be able to overtake all three of these victims. So he worked on it throughout his career, but unfortunately it led nowhere. Mm. In 2012, at the 40th anniversary of the murders, SBI agent Whitman said that he still thinks about the case, but he had no idea what happened. He was like, as time passes, we get further and further from answers, and I just have no clue what could be happening. Awful. But at this point, there were no leads, no evidence, and nothing could lead to answers. There were some fingerprints that were taken from the crime scene, and over the years, they were tested several times against different databases, but there was never a match. And the case remained cold until 2019, when the first major breakthrough in the murders came 47 years after they happened. So a man named Shane Burt was working at the White County Sheriff's Office in Georgia, and he was doing some research for a book about crimes in Georgia. So he was there researching, and White County is about 12 miles south of the North Carolina border. And like I said, Burt was just there doing research. And while he was there... He was talking to some officers and relayed a story about something his father had once said. Billy Burt, Shane's father, had been in jail years earlier when he had told his son a story. Hmm. So Shane and Billy were very close and Shane would visit him often in jail. And one day he told him a story about, quote, killing three people in the North Carolina mountains during a heavy snowstorm. What? So I guess at the time, like when this, when Billy told this to Shane, Shane didn't do anything about it. I don't know how old he was. He was probably on the younger side, like still a kid, teenager. He, you know, I don't think like what can I do about this? Yeah. Yeah. Like my dad's telling me a story, but like, I don't know if it's even true. What am I going to do? So he hadn't done anything about it, but he was just like casually talking to some officers doing this research and told this story And the White County Sheriff's Office immediately recognized the unsolved Durham murders. So they contacted the Watauga Sheriff's Office immediately. And Sheriff Len Hageman at that office said that they immediately realized that this tip could be extremely important to the Durham case. Wow. So investigators began looking into Billy Burt, and they also kind of started looking into new and old leads to try to find if he was associated with anything. Okay. And that's when they found that he was associated with the Georgia-based Dixie Mafia. So this is a, quote, loosely organized network that is believed to have engaged in dozens of violent crimes in Georgia and across the Southeast in the 1960s and 70s. 
So they found that Bert was associated with this mafia, and then they found he was closely connected to other known criminals, Bobby Gaddis, Charles Reed, and Billy Davis. Interesting. So in May 2019, when investigators got this lead, Bert, Gaddis, and Reed had all passed away. But one man, Billy Wayne Davis, was still alive. Oh, shit. Really? Damn. Mm-hmm. So Davis was in prison serving a life sentence for crimes that he had committed in Georgia. What? And, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So the Watauga County Sheriff's Department interviewed him in prison. They interviewed him three times in September 2019, October 2020, and August 2021. And Sheriff Hageman said, quote, it was these interviews that ultimately helped us determine who was responsible through the corroboration of evidence. Interesting. So during these interviews, Billy Wayne Davis admitted that he and three other men were hired for a hit in 1972. So Davis claimed that... They drove to the Durham house. He said that he was just the getaway driver. Of course, he's going to say he's just the getaway driver. Uh And And nobody is alive to say otherwise. Exactly. And he claimed that Bert, Gaddis, and Reed were the ones who actually went inside and committed the murder. He also recalled how they almost got stuck in a snowstorm that night and got caught and that's actually something that Bert had relayed to his son when telling the story. He was like, oh, we we committed this murder in the North Carolina mountains and almost got caught in the snowstorm. Oh, my gosh. So he said he did not know who ordered the hit, but that the him and the other three men were the ones who were like assigned to it and executed the hit. Investigators were able to corroborate his story. They interviewed other sources, looked at evidence, and they just they were able to put together that, yes, he's telling the truth. Okay. And then also they found that the circumstances of the Durham murders were extremely similar to one that the four men were already known to be involved in in 1973, just the next year. What? So they were like, this is clearly very similar, same tactics used and all of that. So they were like, this is definitely the men who killed how, the Durham family. I'm just, Okay. How? First of all, how do you get a reputation for being that guy or those guys, you know? Especially right. in that time, because there's not mm-hmm. like the internet or the dark web or, you know, these things where you can yeah. like search out and hire people. Like, are, is it word of mouth? Like, yeah, I know a I guy. Think it's word like- of mouth with like... <laughs> The mafia. Yeah, that's so crazy. You know, because they were part of the Dixie Mafia. So it's like, it just is word of mouth and people know people and people talk to people and somehow it all comes together. And And I know you're going to explain this next, but I'm like, what was the Durham family doing or involved in that they had a hit out on them? And the answer to that is we have no clue. Shit. Damn. To this day, it is unknown why they were targeted, who ordered the hit, if it was one of them that was targeted and it just ended up that three of them were home, if it was for the entire family. It is completely unknown. And it's not necessarily weird that Davis didn't know who ordered the hit or why. Because I feel like in those situations, the hitmen just is told what to do when they do it yeah 
and there's no really no way for them to find out who ordered the hit because right. one it's been so long but two the people who committed the murders the only one still alive has no clue and there's no other connections or anything especially when you go through a mafia group like that mm-hmm. it's all kept very secretive right so we have no clue damn um like i said jenny had been interviewed and even put under hypnosis over the years to like see if she knew anything could recall anything about why her family might be murdered even before they knew that it was a hit by these four men right and there was nothing there was nothing that anybody including jenny would could remember about the family that would indicate that this would be something that would happen to them There's speculation about what this could be. Bryce being a car dealer, maybe somebody came and tried to get something from him and he refused and it went downhill. But it is like, it's just completely unknown. They had Mm -hmm. no dark history. They had no, nothing in their past would indicate that this would happen to them. Right. And we could speculate for hours because I mean... People live secret lives all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no telling yeah. any of them. It could have honestly been any of them involved in something more yeah. dark and yeah. twisted. I know. And I I started speculating, but then I was like, I don't want to blame any of the victims, no, especially when we yeah. have no clue. Yeah. So I don't even want to go down that road. Yeah. So after police did all these interviews and corroborated that Davis's story was true, they contacted Ginny. And she was informed that her family's murderers had been found. Wow. And then 50 years to the month that the Durham family was killed in February 2022, investigators announced that they had finally found the killers. Dang. Jenny said, quote, I would like to thank all of the people who worked for decades on my family's case. I know that they sacrificed many days and weekends in order to work on solving this case since 1972. And everything that has come from Ginny and the rest of the surviving Durham family has basically been, we're very thankful. We're very glad that this has finally been solved. Um, Nobody seems to talk about finding the reason behind it. Yeah. It's kind of like the killers were found and... We can now get closure. It's so crazy because they would have never been, like, caught, quote unquote, caught, even though they were, you know, not around. But um, if, like, that guy wouldn't have been researching that book. I mean, honestly, Mm -hmm. it's really him that paved that way, you know. And, like, that's why I said it was it's so crazy how this was solved because it wasn't through DNA. It wasn't through fingerprints. It wasn't through anything like that. It was literally... This guy just deciding to tell a story about something his yeah. dad once said, and he happened to be telling it to people in a sheriff's office that recognized it enough to contact right. the other sheriff's office. Like, you know, if people hadn't, if it had been a different office in Georgia that he had gone to, yeah. they might have not recognized it. I mean, this yep. was a well-known crime in the area, but still, it had been so long right. since it happened that... I'm sure there were people who had never heard of it that were working there. And it just so happened that the the officers that he told it to were aware of it. And it's like that is just wild to me. 
it how is. that happened. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's an act of God or the universe, whatever you believe. <laughs> yeah. Putting him yeah. right there for them. But was there any DNA left at the scene for them to compare it to at all? Probably not. Not that was ever reported on. There were fingerprints that they tested, but they never reported on, like, if those fingerprints matched any Davis of the... or of the, the others. Yeah. Um, I believe that they probably did find a match because they said they were able to corroborate For Davis's sure. story through evidence. So I'm guessing that the fingerprints matched at least one of the men. Yeah. That makes sense. Wow. But Bert, Gaddis, and Reed were all dead, and Davis was already serving a life sentence in prison. So uh, I hate that because I feel. I mean, it's it's justice, but it's like, but not really. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like when you have to sneeze, but it goes away, and you're like, "Damn it, <laughs> I wanted to sneeze." Yeah, no, that that's such a good descri- description because mm-hmm. it is. And I mean, the good thing is, I believe Bert, Gaddis, and Reed were all like in prison most of their lives various parts of their lives so like at least they you know had to serve some time for other crimes but it's still so frustrating that by the time this was solved they were long gone yeah yeah and it wouldn't have been solved had it not been for shane burt talking so you know if you know something say something you never know what yeah what it could do for anything a case even if you just think it's a silly story that somebody once told, mm-hmm. just tell it to someone that yeah. might know something. Right. Like an a authority figure. Yeah. So, like I said, while the family does have answers it's still unknown why the durhams were targeted and it likely will never be known but at least the family now has some peace of mind this is such a crazy case i had never heard of it and it's just wild how it was solved and that is the story of the durham family murders solved after 50 years this time not from dna but from (laughs) basically an act of god a major coincidence whatever you want to say it was but it was truly incredible well i think it too gives hope to other cases that because people do i mean there's deathbed confessions there's there was just um oh man what was that oh i'm not gonna remember i was watching something and there was a deathbed confession oh my god it's right on the tip of my brain hole i mean not my (laughs) brain hole my brain um (laughs) i have no clue Oh, it was um, Malcolm X. Oh, the FBI I did see that. agent that had the deathbed confession saying that they basically sent Malcolm X up mm-hmm. for his death or whatever, which that's a whole other thing that we really won't go into right now. But I mean, yeah. look at that. That's that's yeah. that should happen. So, yeah, yeah, just, you never know. You never know. Even cases that there might not be DNA. And I mean, we've talked about some of those where it's like, it feels like there's no hope. Like the freeway phantom killer that I covered a couple of weeks ago where there's like not really DNA. doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope, but it's like, you never never know. know. Somebody might talk. Somebody might have said something to someone once. And then that person just randomly tells it to someone. Like you just never know. Mm -hmm. So there is still hope in a lot of these unsolved cases, even when there's not DNA. Yeah. So that is that story. I know it's a little bit shorter, but I wanted to tell this story because, first of all, we love a solved 
case. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, I just thought it was so crazy. I feel like we've been talking about a lot lately that have been solved from DNA. Right. Of course, that's incredible. And oh, yeah. Awesome when it happens. But this was kind of cool that it was solved, but not through DNA. Yeah, I agree, especially after that much time that that someone was still alive. Yeah. 50 years later, like. Yeah. He must have been. He was 81 years old. Okay. When when they found. Yeah. So. So yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you have a great start to your week. We will see you on Thursday with a brand new episode. And until then, keep it human. Bye guys.